welcome to the Women in Diplomacy podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Sumnicht, and today's guest is Rook Campbell. Hi, Rook. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Hello. I'm really looking forward to discussing lots of different issues and career advice with you. This is our episode in honor of the 2018 Pyeongchang Olympic Games. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do, Rook? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a professor. I teach multidisciplinary work at large here at USC in the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. And I teach classes uh, kind of basically sport politics, sport diplomacy, global networks of sport, issues in contemporary sport. And I also teach on advertising and communication. I personally am a big fan of the Olympic Games and kind of all the diplomatic potential of them. So I thought it'd be really fun to touch on those topics as we lead up to the 2018 Winter Olympics. Um, so let's get to work defining some terms. What would you even call sports diplomacy? Like, what is that? Well, sports diplomacy is a part of cultural diplomacy. And that's, for me, I see it as tools or mechanisms, basically, for managing the international environment and about engaging with foreign publics, whether those foreign publics are in fact so foreign, that being blurred more and more, or whether those are individuals or institutions or more state-based actors. For me, one thing I like about sport diplomacy is that it sort of deals with those formal state diplomatic channels and actors that you might anticipate as typical of diplomacy, but it also involves new actors. So publics, nonprofits, um, corporate actors, corporate diplomacy being an example inside that and happens across channels. So it doesn't necessarily be like we're all sitting down at this round table. Clearly, this is sport diplomacy and it's happening in the cultural arena, but it's also happening across platforms. And so that digital space becomes increasingly important as a territory of engagement. And, and I would say I... I subscribe to or, or follow my colleague Nick Cole's distinction between old and new diplomacy and sort of expanding the roster of actors that are involved in it. But as sport diplomacy, most people think about it in terms of the Olympics or the World Cup and these big mega events. And with each of those examples, you're dealing with state model sport. And so the actor or the basis of organization to get to the World Cup or to get to the Olympics remains that nation state. So it's not an erasure or my diplomacy doesn't negate that. And it primarily continues to channel through around or to center on nation to nation or national actors involved inside that. But we're dealing with an expanded opportunity of people who can communicate, can rebrand, give voice to influence, set agendas, um, impact policy. Very cool. I love this. I love kind of existing in these nuances of diplomacy and breaking down, you know, why they are important. Um, and I think I, I could definitely, I'm putting myself in the shoes of someone who is a traditional diplomat and might be thinking, well, what does it matter? What, what does it matter those things that happen outside of an important negotiating room or outside of a, an important treaty that we're signing. What would you say to those critics? Are the Olympics important and why are they important? 
I often like to begin my semesters in sport diplomacy with students and thinking about, yes, there was this whole philosophy of Olympism and this cultural arena. This becomes a peaceful international movement uh, or an attempt to and aspiring to uh, since its inception, but also what is the role of the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, in terms of the UN? What kind of stature does it have? And it is an international UN or a UN observer state, which is kind of profound. So for those more materialist or realist IR scholars, just beginning to start by contouring out the clout, the stature, its power, its place at the table in and of itself. And that's before you get to the image making and representational influence or how states pander uh, to be a part of this most recognizable symbol in the world and its whole show and the opportunities that the Olympics provide for states to nation brand, not just in the Olympic ceremonies, but in the lead up to and in the rehearsal and the play out, hopefully the success of their athletes at those games. There's all that. And so I think that sort of shores up for me a uh, first level pushback or solidifying of, hey, the Olympics matter and diplomacy does happen, politics do happen by other means, and symbolic politics aren't just sort of illusions, right, uh, with no material play out in the relations between us. So, and, and there's a mediated engagement that it brings, the broadcast aspects of, again, showing and portraying hopefully favorable images. And then the events themselves provide occasions for diplomats to or other government rec representatives to get together, sort of back-channel negotiations that do happen and become excuses for being in the same place, same time, or at least same city, right? Um, and they can spark all sorts of other cascades of other cultural exchanges or cause for agreements, bilateral agreements, or at least talk of them, I guess, in Korea now. And I also like the ways, and when I say I like the ways, I'm, I'm humored in the ways that we don't necessarily look at the International Olympic Committee as a big norm carrier or a legal actor. And yet, in fact, it, it does these. It's like shaping intellectual property rights law, pushing and pressuring China to get on board with some modicum of this to host the 2008 Games. Um, in the last week, uh, the International Olympic Committee through the U.S. Olympic Committee saying, hey, we need a serious and rigorous response. Maybe it's a little bit too, too little, too late, but we need a serious response to all that's been happening the athletes and Larry Nasser. So the day after the convictions saying we expect a whole full resignation of the board and we have these new policies and new rules and we want investigations. And so while that's a second level removed from the International Olympic Committee, um, I use this or offer this as an example that the sport arena doesn't just stay in that sort of bounded space and territory of, hey, these are the Olympic Games and this is the Olympic Village and it lasts for roughly a month, right? And then it's over. But in fact, this impacts legal, political legacies, social, economic realities of people and institutions uh, far beyond the so-called games. Wow. I mean... I knew we were going to get into this and I was so excited to touch this topic, but I will be honest, I had no idea that it was this multi-layered. <laughs> this is awesome. So, so many different levels here, like really fun trivia. I had no idea that the IOC was 
a, na- a UN nation state? Well, it's an observer state. So it basically okay. puts it at the table. It, it has the ability to speak at a microphone on pretty much any issue. So the number and quantities of international um, non-governmental organizations and NGOs that are party to the UN is ballooned and huge, but there's very few UN observer states. And so sitting next to the Red Cross, for example, or sitting uh, in this sort of space where you have the opportunity to weigh in on agenda that go well beyond sport, right? It is like, and that gives you a special recognition as uh, a clout power welding organization. So do you have any watch tips for listeners of this podcast? Like when you're watching the Olympics, do you get excited about anything or look for any sort of issues, opening ceremonies, closing ceremonies? Do you tend to nerd out about anything in particular? I come and go and whether I'm following and nerding out on it, I, you know, with my students, I always say in a couple different contexts, but, and this definitely applies to the Olympics is pay attention to any time there's an anthem or a flag or an emblem, what's happening. And I particularly, I nerd out when there's snafus and, and um, I, I love those moments, not because <laughs> of the fallout because they really do matter dramatically and it can have devastating impacts, but what's going on here. And so looking at how we have expectations for who's representing the nation, who gets to count as our heroes, who gets vilified, where are these conflicts or collisions or suddenly someone's draped uh, in a Mexican and an American flag and running around in their ceremony. What are these transnational identities that are allowed inside there and what alternative messages could be there? Even what are the fans doing? And so I, I like to look at the spaces and how they're patrolled and regulated. I like the sort of ambush marketing moments. And that's a little bit less seemingly of a national or diplomatic issue, but it does come down to that. And and we will see that and can expect that in Korea, the regulation of emblems for which countries allowed and which ones not and unified images. So things like that around in the lead up into the games, I'd say if there's a tip off, pay attention. And when it comes to the opening ceremonies, there's it will one simple question to ask and that is what's the message if you don't get the message is this really a very tight and quaffed crisp branding endeavor for whichever the host nation is maybe 2008 we can see you know one storyline or a consistent and repetitive storyline of how china wants to be seen as an international actor and powerhouse uh do we see the same sort of message from London, what states are trying to communicate what kind of campaigns and image for their internal populations, as well as that larger international landscape. Wow. Okay. Yes. I'm certainly now extremely pumped to be tuning into the Olympics. So busting outside of, of the category of the Olympics, what are a few of your favorite examples from history that illustrate the importance of sports diplomacy? That's a great question. Uh, people often assume, oh, sports diplomacy, if, if, they're, if they're on script or know something about it, maybe they think of ping pong diplomacy in the 70s. And that seems to be the starting point for the study or even a conversation or even the definition of sport diplomacy. And I don't want to devalidate that. That 100% is a part of the history and the lit review and looking at it critically. But some of my favorite examples are maybe sideways glances or overlooked examples. And 
they vary depending on when you're going to ask me uh, or someone asked me of this. So I think of Darfur United. And Darfur United is a team, a refugee team of Darfuri athletes. Uh, they became athletes after they uh, fled Darfur and ended up in Chad. And this organization, IACT, which is a humanitarian aid um, organization, really was working in these camps, partnered a little bit with the United Nations, and realized how sport on the ground level in these camps where there's very little, there's food rations, there's war around, like nothing's good, right? Everything's bad. But the ability to start playing with a makeshift ball in different aspects suddenly created all sorts of new dialogues and moments and a real beauty, I think, that connects to what is at the root of sport diplomacy or even the imagination of sport for peaceful internationalism that might have struck Pierre de Coubertin and creating the International Olympic Movement and so forth. But one thing that continues to stay in me since I've learned about this organization and the work they do is, one, I love it as an example because of their attunement to what's happening on the ground, their ability to create the sport soccer, football, the world's game. And I'm talking soccer and football without standardizations of rules and balls and everything that was happening at the time. But to realize, wait a minute, we have some skills, we can do this. And then to take groups of refugees who made the team and into this international context of playing in the confederate of like Hanifa, independent, basically state members or regional or ethnic members that are not recognized by FIFA into this tournament and to get exposure and to be able to talk about what's happening. And the United States recognized there's a genocide happening in Darfur in 2004. And I guess it kind of came to everybody's attention around 2008. And then it sort of disappears. But the humanitarian crisis and everything still existing there has not disappeared. And so it's that ability of sport or sport politics or different aspects or even human rights work that flames up and seems sensational and puts our attention on this issue here in this part of the world and not here at this other time and disappears that is really problematic. And yet I think Darfur United and the work that they do with kids with boys and girls in the camps and then those men those young boys young men that make the team actually does amplify a message and say wait a minute like this actually didn't go away right and that sort of presence and i love i guess to repeat i love the grassroots self-reflective aspect is like let's just not march in there and think we have all the solutions but let's listen to what the community wants and needs and how we can create mindfulness and all sorts of other campaigns and education to meet basic needs. And that sport becomes a tool for that and a vehicle for something much larger. So that would be one of my favorites. Um, I, I guess I'll, I'll talk maybe two or three. Um, another one is interesting and continues to be, I started looking at Qatar in 2007 when I was a graduate student and looking at their desire to sort of assert their global presence and put themselves on the map and basically say, hey, hey, we're here to get a little bit of soft power to nation brand by building infrastructures, recruiting athletes, hosting more or less secondary global sporting events or world championships, not yet the Olympics, not yet the World Cup, which of course they do now have. And 
I was interested in that because of their recruiting of athletes to change their nationality and come on board and how the international communities sort of like flipped out of this, like, wait a minute, like this, this isn't how we play our sport rules. This isn't an international community and sort of the differential sort of lens on that. But it also remains relevant to say the least, um, but a relevant example because of the little problems or hiccups or glitches and very real material problems that attracting that international attention has when you have grave human rights abuses, labor abuses, and then when other geopolitical fallouts happen and boycotts. And just today, um, as UAE and Saudi Arabia continue to boycott Qatar, Qatar um, in fear of its funding of terrorism and all sorts of other aspects and allegations. But at the same time, there's a football event happening. There's this Asia football championship. And at first they were like, well, how are we going to deal with this, this, you know, other team, right? They can't come here. We're not allowing goods, services, people, these flows. We got this blockade of a sort going. So at first the solution was, hey, we'll, we'll play in Kuwait, right? Neutral ter- territory, more or less. But actually now the exception to the sort of boycott becomes that, okay, home and away games can be played in the home or away place. And so football flows are going to continue. And so what the end of the story is going to be uh, for Qatar and for the international community and for the regional community, we don't know yet, right? So Human Rights Watch reporting that they've improved their labor standards. They're now, you know, not not holding passports and paying minimum wages and more transparency and so on and so forth. But I think I love the case for all sorts of small ways and directions that you can, I can nerd out and looking at transnational and global issues, but also to remind us like nation branding is not all smooth sailing, right? And uh, what seems like a simple and easy, no risk endeavor of sport, in fact, is not. I'm not, and I should say, I'm not a, <laughs> I'm not a half glass uh, empty type person, but I must confess, I absolutely do love the botch moments and the contradictory cases, the ones that leave me perplexed or seeing something that's not right, because that's in fact how it plays out. And the ones that leave my students wanting to ask more questions and being like, wait, 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 tell me more, or they go in and uncover something. And, and so each of these are interesting to me. And yesterday I became fascinated and maybe it wasn't just yesterday but and and, and backs up before yesterday but yesterday i became really interested in the russia athletes and what they're going to be dealing with those that are allowed to compete in 2018 in pyongyang um via this sort of subterfuge the olympic athletes from russia so no they're not representing the russian olympic committee right they're representing something that's like slightly differently so i really appreciated the International Olympic Committee. They have uh, athletes that sometimes compete under the International Olympic Athletes uh, logo, flag, the Olympic flag. So whenever there's been a political transition or international sanctions or dissolution of states, rather than penalize athletes um, for crisis or problems or um war or what's happening with the state, they've allowed them to compete under this flag. And then I guess in 2012, we saw the Refugees Olympic team and athletes competing under this, maybe that was 2016. Um, 
And I wondered why, why wasn't that also in grouped with the International Olympic athletes? Why did it merit and have this nuance aspect? On the one hand, it seemed really important. You can better draw attention to the plight of refugees, to have this storytelling, even though the Olympics, of course, are supposed to be politically neutral, diplomatic, not sort of politic moving and all this. And they are, right? And now we have a third category by which athletes are going to be competing, but not with a national emblem flag, you know, ceremony um, going on or anthem. And that's this Olympic athletes from Russia. And what fascinated me, and as your language, what really made me nerd out yesterday was looking at the guidelines by which the IOC has sort of spelled out what's allowed and what's not allowed. And here they're ultimately putting down a clamp on Russia for its ability to nation brand or get in any sort of national cultural status or rank or symbolic politics benefit from the success of its athletes at this time. And what that ends up looking like, and it's almost an impossible task, is these athletes aren't allowed to wear any emblems or flags or hear the anthem if they win. Right. Um, so that's fair enough. It's, it's again bounded in that sports space and time, but not really. It actually requires the now banned Russian Olympic Committee to make sure that the media is all on script, that they don't accidentally put digital flags on or reference these athletes as Russian athletes, that they need to continue to reference them as the Olympic athletes from Russia, which is now this new distinct aspect. Right. It keeps the name in there, but it, it's supposed to be different. Um, and that the Russian Olympic Committee will be held accountable for any violations of this. They also have to groom their ticket holders and distributors to make sure they're also selling and representing and logoing out all their fan access quoted tickets correctly. They can't have any alternative ceremonies. Any athletes that participate in that will have a penalty, of course, and so will this banned Russian Olympic Committee. And it goes on, like the athletes can't use digital space, like emojis or references on their social media feeds anytime during the games that might sort of be celebrating Russia versus Olympic athletes from Russia. And there's an exception. And I guess this is, you know, these are the things, like I said, I, I like the quirkiness, the oddity, but also the controversy and the very real material impact of this is. But the exception for these athletes is that Evidently, they're allowed to have a flag in their room. So you can keep a Russian flag in your room. Mind you, don't put that in a window and post and broadcast that. Your athletic success and victories or not, or very presence here, cannot be aligned with this nation, right? There's no nation branding and subtle, small, public-to-public, athlete-to-athlete, any way broadcast, but you can have it in your room. And in the hospitality houses that might and do pop up around the Olympic Games, the IOC basically says, look, the International Olympic Committee says, look, we now maintain the right to come in and check out your premises at any time, any day, to make sure there's no flags inside there either, right? So I think this case, even though it's not diplomacy and these cultural exchanges as you might normally think and aren't ping pong diplomacy, highlight that importance of these spaces, the Olympics as a platform for really saying a lot more. And when you decide to take that platform away or to sort of quarantine it, it's really, really hard to do in a digital age. This is incredible, Rook. I feel like 
so fortunate because I feel like we are getting a, a front row seat into one of your lectures. <laughs> um, so if you want to know more or uh, follow Rook's work, where can we find out about you? Do, do you have a Twitter handle? I do have a Twitter handle and I pretty much use it exclusively for sport things. Uh, that will permeate and sort of blend over as the Super Bowl takes over. And with my advertising students, I do a lot of ad talk on there, but that's still in the context of sport. My Twitter handle is at cabinet 48. My mind is blown. I love those three examples that you gave because it really shows all these different levels that sport can can intersect, uh, you know, global issues. I love that you showed us how an international organization or an international issue can be raised and, and seen with global eyes through sport. And then that second example was just so fascinating to see that sports are a platform that can really put pressure on different countries when they are, you know, in such a spotlight. And then finally, wow, I, I just love how you broke down the whole idea of being an individual as a, a diplomat or a representative of a country and all of the the management that, that goes around that. Right. Yeah, for sure. I think that's actually what I think sport diplomacy, new diplomacy really exposes is what is the power of the individual in a media and digital age that wasn't really available to the same extent and the immediacy of that sort of voice and messaging and how that really matters. Mm -hmm. Okay. Speaking of the individual, now we want to hear about you. (laughs) So how did you get into this? What in, what about sports diplomacy kind of drew you into pursuing it? I, I mean, is this what your PhD was about? Uh, yes, in a way. I mean, actively, I'm drawn to the relationship between individual agency and institutions. I have long deeply cared about human rights, and that's largely what I was doing in my PhD in social justice as the larger sort of arc or concentration area. For my specific dissertation topic, I was looking at global governance and questions of how do we get a handle on threats or perceived threats that are global in nature and technology, uh, and how does the state sort of matter? And the context of that was looking at gambling industry and sort of online and corruption and betting and how the convergence of the gambling and the sport industries um, baffles state regulators and baffles and presents problems for the sport industry specifically. So a little bit less diplomacy, but 100% involved in basic regulation, authority, institutions, politics. But I care about, I mean, sport and sport diplomacy, for me, crisscrosses and exposes each of these areas that I've been interested in. I love things that are spatial, uh, sport diplomacy or sport. It's vividly material and symbolic. It's always changing, so you don't get bored. Uh, People care about it. They want to lean in and listen. I was doing work on money laundering and corruption, and I was like, really into this as a PhD student, and I'm still interested in this, and people might be interested for five minutes, but they don't really like at large. And and that's not a reason that it's not important. It still is important. But I realized, wait a minute, I can still talk about money laundering and corruption and all the theories and all the mechanisms and strategies by which this is happening by looking at it in sport. And then suddenly, 
people have something to say and they make those connections and, and theory doesn't remain so abstract. And um, also you're at better conferences and so you can smile and laugh a little bit. But I also love sport and sport diplomacy, sport politics, because it's filled with human bodies, very embodied context. It's filled with emotions. It's alive. I like the complexity, the contradictions of it. I love power, powerlessness, winning and losing, sometimes at the same moment by the very same actor, not just this side, that side. And also on a more personal, on a more personal level, I guess I didn't go into my academic studies thinking or even imagining how my experiences as a professional athlete were going to shape my academic interests. But ultimately, the two wound up being side by side and being a little bit more whole when I, I realized some of my experiences really mattered, like didn't just matter to me to sort of sort out and to process. And I'll give you an example. So I was a professional cyclist for a number of years, and I was living in Italy and racing there. And I was given an ultimatum by my team at one point to win a race I was totally unequipped to win ever in my life, really, uh, which is the Tour of the Dolomites. I'm not super great at altitude. I'm not that kind of climber. All right. So I went into the race being absolutely sick. Also, I got run over by another bicycle. So all these things. It is definitely not going to win this race. So I, I came back and ultimately the team owner uh, threatens me and he's, he throws a table, this whole episode breaks out and he's trying to get me to force, uh, to force me to sign an illegal contract that would say, Hey, I'm willingly leaving this team. Um, and he's withholding a couple thousand euros from me. And he's also having a plane ticket. Here's your plane ticket out of the country. And I say, you know, um, you can throw me off the team, even though it's not in the sport governing bodies regulation, like not allowed. I have a contract, all these aspects, but I'm not going to leave the country. Like you can't make me do that. So he becomes very upset. All right. So I end up fleeing. I'm okay. Like ultimately I flee for my safety and um, I contact the sport governing body for cycling, which is UCI. Uh, so the union cyclists international and at first they're outraged at some of the things and they say, they say, we'll get back to you. And they get back to me and they say, you know, there's actually a lot of uh, reports on your team over the last couple of years. And it's, it's not so exceptional. There's, there's many reports of withheld wages and all sorts of things that have been happening on many teams. In fact, I have 25 on my desk, something like that. The number might not be accurate, but I was like, okay, so I'll get back to you again. So I wait and I wait and they, they don't call back. So I call back and the woman says to me, um, so there's a representative of a international federation. So cycling international federation uh, organization, whose responsibility is to balance the social, the economic, and the political stakeholders. And you would imagine, or I expected, perhaps naively, that that fundamental stakeholder was the athlete, right? That you should, <laughs> that that's the most important element there. And she says, I'm sorry, um, but right now the Tour de France is about to begin, and all of our legal team uh, really has to focus on the men's side of racing just so much more, she didn't say money, but basically so much more is involved and demand and pressing inside that, that we can't, we can't look at the women's, the women's issues right now. Um, I really regret having to say this. So I appreciated sort of the candidness and, you know, truthfulness of, of that. But I realized this system's really broken. Like there's huge differential status and there's a voicelessness. And I started 
to begin what I didn't realize was my research at the time by writing anecdotal stories of other racers and learning the experiences of what had happened, hearing all sorts of abuses of people's passports being kept. And yes, there's financial money being kept, but sexual abuse of athletes and people unable to get the sport governing bodies to respond to this. And now we see this as not shocking, right? We see this as shocking and we're outraged at USA Gymnastics. But yet, is it really anomalous or is this a larger part of the kinds of sports systems that we've put in place? Sports systems that we thought so deeply cared and could so bring about peace or equality or all sorts of characteristics and values socially, politically, and perhaps even economically that we most cherish. But it's not its not really been that way. And I will say... Uh, well, I, I, I'm not a cheat, but I'm definitely not a spoiled sport either. I deeply love sport. I like cycling. I'm a swimmer now. Um, but the system is broken and the stakeholders aren't really being prioritized in the right way. The commercial ones sort of dominating and pushing out others. And this problem isn't unique to sport. So maybe I came to sport diplomacy a little bit by accident and happenstance of different converging interests and academic ones. But I realized it sort of synthesized with these questions that I was personally sort of brought face to face with. And all this, and as I said, what do I like about sport diplomacy and its vividness and all these elements and that body element is this is the field, the institution, these issues, and how they come back down into the very lived lives of people's bodies and flesh. And those two, being able to take those two side by side and study them or to offer tools or something new that can reach people in that really profound reality um, is, is important to me. Yes. Oh my gosh, Rook. This is amazing. I had no idea that you had such a personal connection and a personal history with this. Wow. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, that was incredible. And you are such an amazing storyteller. Gosh, your students are lucky. This institution is lucky to have you. Um given all of the above and all of the opportunities that you've kind of laid out for us, what advice would you have, especially for young women who might be interested in working in the field of sport diplomacy? Well, (laughs) people who are interested, I'm like, yeah, jump in, like, you know, find mentors and do the work and find internships or classes that are going to fuel your interest in that. So always anybody who's halfway interested, I'm like wide open arms, like come on in and like, let's, let's talk about these things. It's awesome. But I guess I am interested in, and this is maybe to re- repeat what I've already said, but that I articulate with my students really strongly. And that I think sport diplomacy offers as a career, as a study academic path for people is that it can be equal parts theory and practice. You know, you can't go too far one without the other, or you drink the Kool-Aid and think like, oh, I'm going to do all these wonderful, beautiful, like peaceful, like empowering, great things with sport. But, But maybe check yourself. What's your strategic evaluations and looking at that? And, you know, you think, oh, sports pure without money of corporations or profit. Well, actually, really, like maybe the corporation 
could be the biggest driver and has the biggest audience and the platform for engagement and voice and change and pressure. So I, I, I guess I just <laughs> say, yeah, just come in and jump and I guess check your, um, your assumptions constantly and don't be afraid to break the mold inside this. I think this is a, a discipline and a practice that looks different in all different contexts. And maybe there's some models that have uh, come before and maybe the systems are so, so, but we're operating or we're existing right now, I think in a moment of change and uh, old networks, boys clubs or ways of muscle flexing and strutting might not, that might not, might've worked in one context aren't really working and shouldn't be tolerated or replicated. So uh, don't be afraid to be game changers. Like come in, see what wisdom there is and do something new. <laughs> Your Twitter handle is at cabinet 48. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? Oh yeah, sure. So cabinet 48 is a part of what has become a little bit larger project for me. Um, I will tell the quick story about what Captain 48 is. Uh, I learned to swim while I was doing my PhD and I was living in Paris and teaching at Sciences Po University. And I became utterly attracted and fascinated by the architecture of these pools built in the 1920s, part of the workers movement, creating spaces that would actually transcend class and invite um, participation and body culture, not just to the wealthy. And it was Piscine Pontoise, and there's a changing room or a cabinet. Everybody gets your own inside there. It's an absolutely um, stunning space. It, and each door has these like little peepholes, which is a little creepy, but also awesome. And of course, you're using them to look outward mostly, I suppose, or to shut the door. And it was by chance, kind of like the larger project that came from it, uh, that I found myself getting cabinet 48 every day because I would show up at the pool, it would open up at the same time, and I would happen to be, because I left my house the exact same time of day and there were other regulars, I would be in the same position in line, sixth, seventh, or whatever number it was, and then they would open the door, march us through there, and then first person gets the first room allotted, second, blah, 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 and there I was in cabinet 48. And it was me learning a sport, a new sport, um, in which I didn't have skill, um, in which I was a little afraid and intimidated, and I didn't want to wear, uh, I was like, I can't put this women's swimsuit on. It was just like too gingering for me, and it was like seemingly humiliating, and yet I do this, um, and I realized what flooding of peace and like silence and also just like life force that this changing room had for me. So my Twitter handle and sports spaces are all sort of dubbed cabinet 48. Um, and at first it was just me talking to myself like cabinet 48, my own secret code. But ultimately I created this project. Uh, it's on cabinet 48.com. And the project is called that day was the fastest boy in the world. And it too uh, emerged out of happenstance. I guess that's how a lot of things happen, even though they make complete sense afterwards, where my computer was dead, battery done, absolutely killed, had to go to Apple store, my phone dead for the day, and I had zero books, and I had a paper, a notebook, and a pen, and I sat down and started sort of scribbling and doodling, and I wrote maybe only five or six things um, on this clean page, and I realized I kind of like them. Normally, the way I write a notebook, I write stuff down, throw it away, never look again, and I kept it. And I realized each of my lines were personal truths. They were autobiographical and they all were about sport. 
And so I continued. So the next day I wrote more. So I had 20, 30 of them, 40. Now I have three or 400 of them. And then I began to collaborate with a friend of mine, Lorenzo Diggins Jr., and we started illustrating them. And so as much, I have two zines, uh, volume one and volume two of that day, I was the fastest boy in the world. As much as the project seems just autobiographical, personal, I loved it because it provoked other people's stories. And the stories that people have told me, talking to me when encountering buying or having seen the zine or some of the public engagements that I do with this. And I've lectured on sport integrity and I say lecture light uh, because this is made for the public, not like I'm going to drill something into where we've talked about uh, gender testing and all sorts of elements and controversies around sport in these contexts or doping and, you know, or doping and gender testing and gambling regulation. Um, But ultimately I get back down to, like I said, my concern about how this lives in us. What are those emotional tools, uh, the ways it shapes, frames, or invades, or tries to take our bodies or empower our bodies and you know create muscles in different ways. And so this storytelling project that day was the fastest boy in the world uh, exists in these two zine forms. And then it's also all these public contributions. And right now the project is just emerging. It's a, a real makeshift website. There's a template on there. People can download it. They can just write out the simple line for themselves, uh, their truth or multiples of them. And people will be like, oh, I don't have a sports story. And in fact, everybody does. We've like all been touched by however much we hate, detest, don't like sports, don't see ourselves as a sporty person. Um, it, we swim in it, right? We swim in it constantly. And so this project is about that. You can download it. You can submit it through other templates that are on side there. You can post things on social media. Or um, if I'm so lucky, maybe I'll get to meet you and again here publicly and maybe participate in one of the upcoming um, public engagements that um, I'm anticipating here in Los Angeles in the next month. Everyone, go check out cabinet48.com. Follow Rook on Twitter at cabinet 48 I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you, Rook. Thanks for being a guest on Women in Diplomacy. So much fun. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Women in Diplomacy podcast. The theme song for this podcast is called Misty Moses, and it's by the artist Rodrigo y Gabriela. Use of that recording is graciously provided by RubyWorks Records in Dublin, Ireland. For more information and to download more music by Rodrigo Gabriela, check out theforeignpolicyproject.org.